Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Here you go. Here you go. Murder. It's not my favorite word of the day, but it's apt, and it's not sports-related, but murder is the nothing personal word of the day. Why? Because that's what I think that every employee at Boeing should be charged with, criminally. Those employees, the New York Times reports, those employees involved in misleading the FAA as the simulators were being checked for the 737-800 maxes. Yes, those are the planes that have crashed and that are no longer being made. This is a billion-dollar issue for Boeing, but worse than that, this costs lives. Two deadly crashes, and there are emails that have been turned over to the FAA where employees of Boeing have actually mocked the inspectors, mocked the FAA, saying that anyone could follow in these simulators. Anyone, anyone could make the mistake of not passing the 737-800s into basically the ability to fly. It is an explosive report by the New York Times, but I think it goes deeper. Boeing's going to absolutely investigate. They're going to fire the people involved. The question is, will there be criminal charges? And I believe there should be. Today's arbitration day in Major League Baseball. Let's talk about exactly what that means. This was a day that I always look forward to over 18 years. This is the deadline where you have to settle a contract with an arbitration-eligible player. For purposes of education, let's remind everybody listening and watching, thank you for listening and watching, that in baseball, you are the property of your team for six years. The first three years, the team gets to decide exactly what you're going to get paid. Of course, there's a minimum in the collective bargaining agreement, but the team decides unilaterally what the player will get paid. The second three years, the team and the player have to agree on a contract number. And if they can't agree, then they go before three arbitrators. They argue their case. The arbitrator makes a decision, and then the player gets paid that amount. After six years, the player becomes a free agent. Today is the day that all players between three and six years of service, it's called. A year of service is basically a year in the big leagues, whether you're on the roster or on the injured list. Today is the day when you have a deadline, and it was this afternoon at 1 p.m. Eastern. So it is a frenzy of activity in baseball. But that frenzy never used to happen when I started. But I helped make it happen, and here's how. Back in 2000, when I started with the Montreal Expos, we had arbitration-eligible players, and the rule was that you would negotiate all the way up to including during the hearing. So imagine that you're negotiating for months on months. You go to a hearing in front of three arbitrators, but meanwhile, you're also negotiating with the player and with the agent during the break. We used to call it courthouse step settling. Nothing ever good would happen to a baseball team who would settle prior to a hearing or during a hearing. So we decided that we were going to make the day today, it's called the arbitration exchange deadline, we were going to make this the deadline for settling a case with a player. It was called file to go. 
which means if we file a number with the arbitrators, we are not going to settle. We are going to a hearing in January or February in either Tampa or Arizona. It would switch off. I was always happy to go to Tampa or Arizona, made no difference to me. So we decided as a front office that we were going to start being absolutely strict. Why would we do this? Why is file to go a meaningful strategy? Because we tell the players, if you don't agree right now by 1 p.m. today, we are closing off all communication. So you better file a number with the arbitrator that you think you can defend. What do I mean? Before there was file to go, teams were settling and negotiating all the way up into the hearing. And often there'd be something called a midpoint settlement. The team would offer $2 million. The player would want $4 million. And a midpoint settlement would be the middle, which would be $3 million. How do you get an artificially high midpoint, you may ask? Well, if we're willing to pay a player $2 million and the player asks for $6 million, they can then argue the midpoint is $4 million. So a midpoint settlement would all, all of a sudden be $4 million instead of $3 million. So that was leading to an escalation in salary. And I wouldn't stand for that. So we decided to say, you better file a number with the arbitrator that you're willing to defend. Because if a player would file $6 million knowing that the team would settle and get the artificially high midpoint of $4 million, that's one thing. But imagine if that player had to go into court and have to say, yes, I deserve $6 million. Why does that matter? Because in arbitration, the arbitrator either chooses the number that the player submits or the number that the team submits. There's a winner and a loser. They don't split the number. They don't do midpoints once you're in a hearing. It's one side or the other. So the player has to go into a hearing and say to the arbitrators, I deserve $6 million and here's why. But if they really don't deserve anything close to $6 million, guess what? They're going to lose and get paid what we would submit as a team, which is $2 million. So when we do file to go, what that has the impact of is players end up filing lower numbers which means the exposure of our team when we'd go to arbitration was much lower because it's not between 2 million and 6 million. The player would then do 4 million because he knew he'd have to defend that number. The funny part that the players never understood, and I couldn't get other teams to understand until years later, is that we never cared what the player filed at. Because we knew the player was filing at a number lower than he thought he deserved because he knew that once we passed this deadline, we were going to trial. Other teams completely thought we were crazy. None of them followed it. They, the agents said it's unfair. You can't do that. You have to negotiate with us. Why would agents want to keep negotiating? Because they know owners give and they give. Why? Because agents say to owners, listen, if you go to arbitration, my player's feelings are going to get hurt. My player's going to be very sad to hear the negative things you're going to say about him. He won't want to play so hard for you. And by the way, he'll never want to sign with you as a free agent. La, 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 la. It was white noise to me. I never believed what an agent said, but they tugged at the heartstrings of an owner. So we took the owner out of the equation. We took emotion out of the equation. How beautiful is it when emotion has nothing to do with a negotiation? When you go in just blinders, 
knowing that you're doing the best you can to keep salaries as low as you can. It took a year for agents to realize that we were absolutely serious, that we were not going to negotiate and settle at an artificial midpoint, that if you didn't settle with us on the deadline day, you were going to trial. And players and agents don't like to go to trial because they have to prepare for it. It's like putting on a full case. There's direct examinations. There's cross-examinations. There's, there's appeals. There's all sorts of, you don't appeal the actual result, but you get to sort of counter the arguments of the other side. Believe me, it's a pain in the tuchus. And we took advantage of that because it wasn't for me. We had in-house lawyers who were more than happy to go to the hearing room because that was like litigation practice for them. But agents hated it. So then some teams started taking note because the commissioner's office started taking note. And the commissioner's office said, you know what? What these expos are doing, the file to to trial, they called it. We called it file to go. That may have a quashing impact on what the players file at. Let's study this. I love what MLB does. They study everything. They put it out in triplicate. They make sure that they can convince owners and presidents and GMs that anything they're suggesting is going to be right no matter what. And you know what? They started suggesting it to teams, and then more teams did it. Fast forward to 2020 today, and 30 out of 30 teams, I'm proud to say, are filed to go. What that means is that agents now know if they don't get their player signed by today at 1 o'clock, they have to bring that player to a hearing room. That's how you get settlements like we saw today with Mookie Betts. Mookie Betts set a record, got a $27 million settlement from the Boston Red Sox. Why would Mookie Betts agree to $27 million? And why would the Red Sox agree to pay him $27 million? Here's another wrinkle in arbitration. When you are eligible for the final time, which means it's your last year under control of the team, in this case the Red Sox, and the following year you become a free agent because you've been on your team for six years, it is that year that that player in arbitration gets to compare himself to any free agent anywhere in baseball. As opposed to Aaron Judge, who's a younger player, who's eligible for arbitration, he can only compare himself to players in his class, it's called. Picture a freshman in college trying to get paid, ha-ha, and only being able to compare themselves to other freshmen. There are better seniors out there, but they cannot compare themselves to the seniors. But a senior in college trying to get paid can compare himself to anybody, whether it's people in the pros, whether it's freshmen in college, whether it's people in independent leagues, anybody. So Mookie Betts was able to compare himself to Mike Trout. Aaron Judge was not. Mookie Betts was able to compare himself to Miguel Cabrera. Aaron Judge was not. So Mookie Betts at one year and $27 million, the way to picture that is, if he were a free agent signing a one-year deal, what would he get? As an MVP in 2018, he has special accomplishments, as in a World Series ring and an MVP, top-of-the-lineup hitter, premium defensive position, premium defender in a, in a market that sells out. All of these factors factor into the arbitration setting. That makes sense. The next question that people ask me is, well, now... Can Mookie Betts, is he now eligible to be traded now that he has a one-year contract? Let me explain. Mookie Betts had a one-year contract on the tender date, which was over a month ago. The tender date in baseball is when literally, literally, you tender, which means give, you tender a contract to a player. The Red Sox tendered a contract over a month ago to Mookie Betts, but there was one thing that was left blank 
that all of you listeners and watchers out there, you'd never leave this blank in your contract. It was the amount he was going to get paid. So he was tendered a contract with a blank in the amount paid. But that's okay because when you get tendered a contract, it means you're in the arbitration system in baseball. You're protected by the union and the rules of the collective bargaining agreement. So all that happened today is the Red Sox filled in the blank of what that contract number is, 27 big ones. But that doesn't mean he's more likely to be traded today than he was yesterday. Because everyone in baseball, all 30 teams knew around what Mookie Betts was going to get paid. Let's say anywhere from 25 to $30 million. That's the range that all GMs assume for Mookie Betts. So when teams are deciding whether they want to trade for bets, and when the Red Sox are deciding what they're doing with their payroll and what the return they want for Mookie Betts, it is completely irrelevant that he signed today for the $27 million. He's just as likely to be traded today as he was yesterday. That goes for Chris Bryant. He settled a one-year deal in, before arbitration, the settle date, of $18.6 million. People in Chicago are tweeting at me at David P. Sampson. Does this mean that we're keeping him? Does this mean that the grievance against baseball for service time has now been settled? Does this mean he's now going to be traded? The answer is, again, not one thing changed. Chris Bryant was tendered a contract over a month ago, and today they filled in the blank. Any team waiting to trade for Chris Bryant knew exactly what he was going to get paid. When Theo Epstein, who is the president of baseball ops of the Cubs, if he ever comes out and tells you that now we've got clarity on Chris Bryant, he's misleading you. There is no more clarity today. What they really need to hear is about the grievance, because the grievance is about something called service time. Service time is how a player knows when they become eligible for arbitration and when they become a free agent. And as you remember, Chris Bryant was held in the minor leagues because the Cubs wanted to keep him for an extra year. If, and it was a great move by the Cubs, we've done it with players. You absolutely should do that with your players. You don't call them up till mid-April at the earliest. To me, it's mid-June when you can not only keep the player for an extra year, but keep him out of arbitration for an extra year. Any little thing we can do to keep payroll down and keep production up, that's what we're gonna do. But if Chris Bryant wins his grievance, he could be awarded free agency early. That's something that if I'm trading for Chris Bryant, I've got to know in advance. It has nothing to do with the $18.6 million. It has everything to do with when he can become a free agent because that's when I'll know how long I'm going to get him, which is how I'll know how much I'm willing to give in order to get him. The New York teams are going to be very active today. They've got some superstars. The Mets settled with Noah Syndergaard for $9.7 million. Now, you would say that Noah Syndergaard as a free agent would get way more than that. But as you remember from three minutes ago, Noah Syndergaard is younger than Mookie Betts, doesn't have the service time that Mookie Betts does, meaning the experience in baseball, the years on a team. So Noah Syndergaard cannot compare himself to Max Scherzer or to Zach Greinke or to Garrett Cole. He can only compare himself to pitchers in his class. The Mets also have to deal with Marcus Stroman. Do they want to go to a hearing with the player who they acquired last season and who they are keeping as part of their push to become competitive in the NL East? The Yankees also had a big decision as they're figuring out what to do with Aaron Judge. 
I can imagine a lot of problems in an Aaron Judge negotiation because convincing Aaron Judge that he cannot compare himself to the great sluggers in baseball, explaining to Aaron Judge that he's an oft-injured player who doesn't play full seasons. I've had to do that with players who are superior players, but they've missed time for whatever reason. When you're injured, that means you get a demerit in arbitration. It's not just lack of performance that hurts you, it's lack of staying on the field. So picture someone like Giancarlo Stanton. When Giancarlo Stanton was going through arbitration, we had conversations with him before the long-term deal saying, listen, if you're not gonna stay healthy and you haven't been healthy, you don't get to break arbitration records even though when you are healthy, you are playing like an MVP. So front offices spend, they split up the players who they have on their team arbitration eligible, They're negotiating with agents. It's a cluster of a day. You're getting calls back and forth, and you're up against a hard deadline. Because at 1 p.m., that's called the deadline to exchange numbers, where we literally send an email to Major League Baseball saying, these are the players who are unsigned. These are the amounts we're willing to pay them in arbitration. And at the same time, the union does that, exchanges their numbers. That's called arbitration exchange. So John Mara uh, had some funny things to say today. I, uh, he did a press conference with his new coach, uh, who's Joe Judge. But I got to tell you, I was focused more on what he said beforehand. And we're going to get to Judge later. But explain to me this. You're John Mara, uh, the Mara family. Obviously, you own the Giants. And you get asked a question at a press conference for a new coach whose name is Joe Judge. But you're asked a question about Matt Rule. Why was he asked a question about Matt Rule? That's simple. He was asked that question because it was clear that Matt Rule was the number one choice for the New York Giants. They were going to get him on a plane, bring him to New York, and sign him up. But then Matt Rule got offered a seven-year contract. Matt Rule called John Mara and said, Hey, John, before I get on this plane, I want you to know it's going to take seven years and at least $62 million with a chance to make 70 if you want me to be the coach of the Giants. John Morris said, pound sand, we're going to find someone else. And then John Mara went public. And he said, we weren't going to go seven years with anybody. What an interesting thing for an owner to say. What he basically was saying, I hope you can hear me now. Okay. I had a mic thing. So I have this cough button and I disconnected it because I was coughing and it's, it's done by a binder clip. It's not exactly the fanciest way to put a cough button together, but you know, we're on a budget here. And so it came undone and I didn't realize it's actually connected to the mic. So I actually was talking into air, which frankly is how my family thinks I do every day anyway. So we're talking about Matt Rule and John Mara, who said that he's going to not go seven years. Why that caught my attention is that there's no reason when you're the Giants and you know the way you are as a coach and as a owner and as a team, if you're not Bill Parcells, there's really little chance that you're going to have that coach for seven years. And take a look at what the Giants have done in the past. Two years each for their past two coaches. They had McAdoo got rid of him. They had Shermer got rid of him. Why is it they think that Matt Rule is going to be the savior? Every time you hire a new coach, you think he's your guy. 
but I applaud John Mara for realizing his weaknesses, for realizing that it's unlikely that his new coach, Joe Judge in this case, is going to be around for that many years. The fact that Matt Rule was able to get seven years, bless his soul. Let's move on to Joe Judge. People in New York were ecstatic about Joe Judge's press conference. If you didn't watch it, I'd like you to go on YouTube. If you're on YouTube watching me, I appreciate it. But Joe Judge, let me tell you what he did. Uh, <laughs> so he takes the microphone, and he's a, uh, he's a strapping lad, right? He, he looks like a football coach, right? He square shoulders. He didn't look like Mike McCarthy in his press conference, who was very stiff and sitting at a table. He was actually, Joe Judge was behind a podium. He grabbed the podium the way George Bush would grab a podium by when he gave a speech. He would gesticulate with his hands. Ruben's wearing a Marlins jersey, a Fernandez jersey. It's Jersey Day here at CBS. Props out to you, Ruben. So Joe Judge is sitting there, and he starts talking about stuff at the press conference that made my hair stand up because it was so forced and so wrong from an ownership standpoint and so beautiful from a desperate fan base standpoint. He talked about the following three things that I want to teach you. One, every coach says this. Watch every press conference. We are going to play hard. We are here to win. Why do all coaches say that? Are you telling me that we just hired you and you're going to have your players not play hard or that you're playing to tank or you're playing not to win? Second thing he said, our players will be prepared every week. Really? Is that the minimum threshold for a new coach to say that his players are going to be prepared? He sure as hell better be prepared if you're a new coach. And then he said, and we are going to be punching some noses. He literally said that we are going to be physical. We are going to be a physical team. We're going to practice in full pads, he said, constantly. We are going to have live tackle full pad practices. Everyone was excited. Giants fans were tweeting away. I got tweets at David P. Sampson saying we finally got our guy. Parcells, part deux. Who needs Belichick? We're getting a ring. Who needs Manning? Here's the problem, Joe Judge. And as the GM and the owner and the president of the Giants knew, Joe Judge is writing checks that he cannot cash. Do you know that the collective bargaining agreement in the NFL actually mandates how often you can do live tackling and full padded practices? You can't do it every day. And Joe Judge got called out immediately by players where fans were tweeting out how excited they were. Joe Judge came out so overwhelmingly intense that he looked to me like a rookie going into a clubhouse for the first time where he doesn't want to seem meek, and he comes out and he starts throwing things around and whipping his bat and helmet around. And do you know what veterans do when they look at someone like that? They laugh. They false hustle, eyewash. Those are some of the words that are used by veteran players when they see people come in. I'll give you an example that I did because I did false hustle and eyewash. I told you when I first started in baseball, I was young, and I wanted to show that I belonged. So I started having meetings every morning, 7 a.m., 6.30 a.m., eyewash, false hustle. Joe Judge coming in and grabbing that podium and saying what he was going to do to change the Giants mentality, that's a complete F you to Shermer, to McAdoo, to Mara, because what he's basically saying is that everything that you thought you were doing in previous regimes— I'm the Alabama. I'm the guy from the uh, Patriots. I will take you to the promised land. I don't buy it. 
Sorry, Will Manso is a, is a guy who uh, loves the Giants. He's so excited. He wore the David Jones, Daniel Jones jersey when Jones replaced Manning. He wears a Manning jersey. He thought yesterday was the beginning of a Super Bowl run. But uh, hey, Will, um, at Will Manso, this is at David Sampson saying, uh, sorry. So you want to talk to Sampson, do you? That's something we try to do here. It's fun to do all the time. And it's something about... Uh, Twitter at me, there's these DMs in Twitter, and I'm getting amazing questions all the time, and I try to answer them sometimes on Twitter, sometimes in DM, and sometimes we make it to the show. So the question today, and so you want to talk to Samson, follow me, also rate me, review, five stars, I appreciate it, download, subscribe. The question was about a story that came out two days ago, and it's a great question, and it's a great story that I wanted to talk about. There's a football player named Kyle Rudolph, and Kyle Rudolph has a problem, and that means we all have a problem. Kyle Rudolph was asked by a member of the media after the wildcard game last week if he would give his game gloves, Kyle Rudolph's game gloves, to this member of the media who was going to give these gloves to charity to be auctioned at charity. When a player is approached by someone and said, hey, we want to use your equipment, your game-used equipment, to help raise money for charity, more often than not, a player is going to say yes. Kyle Rudolph said yes. What happened next is shocking. Kyle Rudolph was informed, and then it became public rather quickly, that that media member put those gloves on eBay and sold them for like 350 bucks. That media member's career is over. He shouldn't be allowed in any clubhouses ever again. Is it possible he's going to come out if I were him or her? Don't know whether it's a he, she, or they. What I do know is if I were the PR person for he, she, they, how's that for political correctness, Coca? I would say, hey, I put it on eBay, but all that money is going to charity. And then I would say, that's BS. You took from a player and you tried to do it to bolster your own income. And you used the access that you have in a clubhouse to professional athletes to benefit yourself. I have no problem with that if you just admit it. Hey, Kyle, I would like your gloves. May I have them? Leave it at that. And then Kyle would say yes or no. Hey, Kyle, can I have your gloves? Because my paper or my blog doesn't pay me or my station they don't pay me enough, and I need some extra money. Can I have your gloves, and could you sign them because I'm going to sell them? I love it. I love the honesty. Instead, what this guy did was lie. And what it does is it makes players question every time someone asks for an autograph. I can't tell you the number of times that I've had to deal with players on this issue. And it's uncomfortable for me because I know the truth. And the truth is, when you see a bunch of kids trying to get autographs from players at games, at spring training, outside the stadium when players are coming in and out, 75% of those kids are being paid by adults in the memorabilia business. The kids go and get the autographs, and then they give the autographed items to people who are going to resell them, and those people pay the kids some shekels. I know you're going to say I'm a cynic. I know you're going to say I don't believe you. I promise you I'm right. I've seen it. I've watched it happen. And it makes me insane. It makes me insane because 25% of the kids actually want an autograph. 10% of the adults actually want an autograph. 90% of the adults are doing it to, be, to sell. So I have no problem 
when players do not sign autographs to those adults. But when it's kids, I always tell the player to sign. The problem is the player and I both know that sometimes those kids are not there for the autograph. What's a key thing that we tell players to look for? When you go up with an autograph and you've got something in a plastic case that is in mint condition and it's surrounded by other players and other pictures and other cards, odds are that's not a collector for personal reasons. That's a collector for business reasons. If you have someone who has something that is wrapped, a kid or an adult, a wrapped ball, and they're unwrapping it for you to sign it, and then they say, sweet spot, please. On the baseball, the sweet spot is sort of the the front, if you've seen a baseball. Actually, you can see where these balls are signed if you're watching this. I never know which way to put my finger because the camera's backwards. That is the sweet spot. I'm pointing to a signature right there in the middle of a ball. When you say to a player, you must sign on the sweet spot, that's to be sold. That's an Ichiro ball who didn't sign on the sweet spot. That's another place to sign as well. And you see that little sticker below there. There's a sticker below the signature. That's an authentication sticker. That's something you look for in the memorabilia business. If you're getting something to sell or if you just want to fear collection. What I tell the players is it's okay when people ask your autograph to actually ask a question. Engage the person. Look them in the eye. Hi, what's your name? Who's this for? What's the purpose of this? And I find when someone is lying, they become flummoxed. They don't know what to say. And if you then want to move on to sign someone else, someone else's item, I'm all for it. What happened to Kyle Rudolph is a disgrace. I appreciate. So you want to talk to Samson. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about why it's hard for players to deal with autograph seekers. So you guys hear me talk about Coca. Coca has great credibility as, as a producer. I I wanted to work with him. He's one of the best. He has zero credibility when it comes to movies or TV shows at all. So he had to really redeem himself uh, when he told me to watch something. He had me watch something called Love Sick, which I'm going to review. I think I did review. Coca, did we review Love Sick yet? Okay, we have not reviewed Love Sick yet, but I will tell you, he told me to watch it, and I had a moment where I said, I'm going to give him another try, and it was phenomenal. And then he said, you got to watch this. But I also heard from several people on Twitter, it's called Don't F With Cats. It's a documentary on Netflix. It's Don't F blank blank K. I think you know the letters that go between the F and the K, right? It's the first two letters of the three-letter word cut. So Don't F blank blank K with cats. I had no idea what it was about. Coca said, do yourself a favor and watch it. So it's a three-episode, three-hour documentary that will blow your socks off. It's the scariest piece of documentary documentary filmmaking I've seen in years. And it's not horror because I won't watch horror. This is the story of a man or a boy or somebody who posted a video on the internet on YouTube of killing a cat, of torturing a cat, and posted it. And this is a story of two people living in two different places who started to do internet investigations. They wanted to find out who the person was who had tortured the cat on the internet. And this documentary is about 
how they identified this person, the clues they found by looking at the video. If you think you're posting a picture on Instagram or a video on YouTube and that people can't examine it and learn a lot about you just because you blur your face, hide your face, disguise your voice, there are internet sleuths out there that make Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys look like rookies. And this documentary paves the way to show how internet sleuths can be even better. But the story doesn't end there. This wasn't just about a video of somebody torturing a cat on YouTube. This is a story about a serial killer, about someone who becomes a murderer, and about how he gets caught by a bunch of people who are not in law enforcement. This is three hours of your time that you will not soon forget. You'll be horrified on three levels. Level number one. Are there really people out there who crave for attention so much that they're willing to torture animals on screen? Are there really people out there who have such reckless indifference toward human life that they're willing to commit murder just to get attention? Is it true that the days of Charles Manson, Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, all the serial killers who just craved attention, who had so many mental health problems that were not basically taken care of by our society, are there still people out there doing that? And is it possible that the internet is full of people who can actually be detectives without any training, without any certification? And how do we get those internet detectives to have a voice and to be listened to when a tip is sent to actual law enforcement every minute by people and the majority are not credible? How do we teach the law enforcement when a tip is credible and when it's not? These are issues that did not exist before social media. This is not something that Mark Zuckerberg ever thought of when he started Facebook, that there would be a chat room filled with people who were simply trying to identify a man who tortured a cat, and then what happened from there? There's no way sitting in his dorm room in Harvard as he was about to drop out when he was raiding girls that he imagined that people would imagine a documentary called Don't F with Cats. It's three hours, and you're not going to be sorry. Let's talk, keep talking about social media and talk about Mike Leach. Uh, if you follow the show, you'll know who Mike Leach is. No, I'm just kidding. You don't know who Mike Leach is, I'm going to tell you. Mississippi State, that's a college. They hired a new coach named Mike Leach. Why is that making the show? It has nothing to do with Mike Leach, that's for sure. It has nothing to do with Mississippi State, that's for sure. What it does have to do with is what has come out publicly in the last day about the hiring of Mike Leach. And this you're going to find interesting. Mississippi State hired outside consultants to measure the social media reactions to all rumored and leaked candidates for that coaching position. I want that to marinate with you, please. That means a coach was hired because he scored positively by a third-party outside consultant in how fans were reacting to his name on social media. Let me put it another way. It's too much to be believed. Mississippi State spent money paying a company, then leaked names of possible coaches, waited to hear what people would say on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, all the others, and then decided whether that would be a positive hire for the school. Let me tell you what it used to be, and let me tell you what it should be. 
I have no problem with colleges discussing with their most important alums whether or not they agree or disagree with a certain coaching hire. Why am I okay with that? Because that's business. We call them boosters. That has a negative connotation. I call them donors. If the University of Miami has someone who's giving a lot of money to the University of Miami football program or to the school who loves the University of Miami football, and I call and say as the president or athletic director of the school, hey, what do you think of hiring Manny Diaz? And I say, if you hire Manny Diaz, I will not give you another penny. That's going to go into my equation. Or if they say, if you hire Manny Diaz, I will give you $5 million extra dollars next year. That's going to go in my equation. I love it. That's normal. Expected. By the way, it happens everywhere. What never happens is a school or a professional organization looking at the reaction of fans and then deciding what they're going to do. When I first got into baseball, I've talked about him a little bit. The first GM I ever had was someone named Jim Beatty. Jim Beatty, former pitcher for the Yankees. Jim Beatty taught me a lesson that I've imparted on many, many employees, many GMs and managers, many speeches to students, to adults, schools, anywhere I've been. I tell the following story. I'm asked very often, one of the number one questions I'm asked in baseball related, not about Survivor or anything else, but in baseball is, how do you handle the negativity from the fans? How do you handle when fans are pressuring you to sign a player or trade for a player or not to trade another player? And my answer is, it's the same with the fans and the media, right? Because media writes things all the time. You should be spending more money. The Marlins are a disgrace because their payroll's not high enough. I read that for 16 years. And here's what Jim Beatty taught me in 1999, and it still holds true today. If you start listening to fans or the media, you will soon be amongst them. If you start listening to fans or the media, you will soon be amongst them. What he meant is, if you're making your decisions based on people who don't know how to do your job, you're going to lose your job, and then you'll be on the other side. Now, I know many of you on the other side of the camera are laughing right now, saying, well, you must have done that, because now you are that. You are in the media. Well, I was fired for a totally different reason, having nothing to do with my impact as the president of a team because I didn't pay attention to what fans or media ever said. I listened, I gave them an ear, but never was a decision made to trade for a player, to trade a player, to sign a player, for the sole reason of the impact that it would have on our fan base, or to increase our fan base, or whether it would get rid of some negativity. Never did it, never would. What Mississippi State did today is they changed the way business is done. Now we are giving fans, media, a seat at the negotiating table, an opportunity to help choose players and coaches. Just because you win your fantasy league does not mean you can be a GM. Pick of the day. God, I hate the pick of the day because I hate losing. Who in his right mind would bet the Vancouver Canucks? I told you it was a one-star pick. I got a bunch of tweets saying, nice pick, Samson. It was horse hockey. It's my new favorite expression. That's Colonel Potter from MASH, Harry Morgan. Rest in peace. 
So I need to get back to the NBA, and I need to find a way to do better for you. And I looked at all the games, and I started thinking about what I really wanted to talk about and what interested me. And I started thinking about Michael Jordan, because Michael Jordan is the person who's responsible for breaking my heart more than any athlete in the history. Baseball, basketball, my whole career, Michael Jordan broke my heart more than anyone else. Did you know Michael Jordan bought the Charlotte Hornets in for $175 million in 2010? Did you know his team is now worth over a billion dollars? He just sold off a piece to a bunch of hedge funds. That's part of what Michael Jordan did. Take some money off the table. I get it. Michael Jordan's another example, and we've talked a little bit about it before. An example of a superb, superior goat, best athlete ever, who thinks he can translate that skill into the boardroom, into the executive office. Michael Jordan has been, hands down, one of the least successful owners judged by team success in the NBA since he started. Not by money, because clearly his franchise is worth more. But he's had two playoff appearances, has never even won a playoff series. He's built his net worth to over $1.6 billion, according to Forbes, which I don't pay attention to because they never have it right. But Jordan Brands is still a thing. I sit around this office and look at people in their sneaker wars telling me what a big deal it is when people are Jordan Brands. They're not Jordan Brands, how elite it is to be a part of Jordan Brands. And then he's got the team, whether he owns 90% or he sold off 10, 20, 30%, he's still a majority owner. So he's doing very well financially. But what is it about his decisions that make it so he cannot win? And then I read a little bit about the people, the players he's chosen, the GMs he's chosen, the presidents he's chosen to run his team. And like many athletes, he was very into having people around him who he knew and trusted, people around him who he was comfortable with. And very often when you surround yourself by those people, you're surrounding yourself not by quality, but by comfort and quantity. And that is not the way to be successful. So the Hornets go into this season, they were not expected to compete, and they have not competed. Meanwhile, they're playing the Utah Jazz, and that's why I'm getting to my pick of the day. The Utah Jazz are only favored by 12 and a half points. I took a look at that line. I thought about Tommy Tran, who talks to me about looking at a line, seeing if there's some sort of vig that's misplaced, some sort of information I can glean that can help give me an advantage, and I couldn't find anything. I think 12 and a half will be the perfect line. And I really wanted to take the Hornets because I wanted to root for Michael Jordan. I wanted to get 12 points. And I wanted to win a game. So my pick of the day was the Hornets. But then I knew that I haven't won a pick in the entire year. Oh, three and one. So I did a full George Costanza and I decided to go against what I thought. So I like the Hornets. My pick of the day is the Jazz, which means from your standpoint, if you're listening and betting, take the Jazz, give 12 and a half, take the Hornets, get 12 and a half, give the VIG to your bookie, and move on to another day. I'm just kidding. Take the Jazz. They're going to crush the Hornets. Jazz are 25 and 12. Should be a 15-point line. Tommy, we're taking the Jazz. Utah. Wait to see. So today's Friday. We got four big games. I'm being pressured into picking the four games for my wait to see, but I want to give you the rules first. Because with wait to see, I always, if I don't get it right, I tell you my wait to see was wrong. I have a spreadsheet that has no next to a wait to see that I didn't get or yes next to a wait to see that I did get. So for wait to see, I'm going to pick all four games. It's not my pick of the day today. 
And the wait to see counts as a yes if I get three out of four games right. My game, my show, my rules. If I get two out of four, I'm going to get a push. If I, if I only get one out of four, I'm going to take the loss on the wait to see. Now, when you're going to watch four games and you're a fan of one of the teams, I'm going to start with the Packers who are the last game on Sunday. Do you ever have a hard time betting against the team you love? Why would you want to root against your team? Well, I love the Packers, second favorite team to the Giants, who used to be my favorite team, but they're really not anymore. But the Packers are giving five points. If I go against them, does that mean that I'm choosing the Packers to win by one, two, three, or four? Am I going to take that small a window? Forget it. I'm taking the Packers. I'm giving five because I'm watching it and rooting for the Packers. The other three games, I'm neutral. Let's go Ravens. Why are they only giving 10? The Ravens are the best team in football. But the Texans are getting 10. I don't view, I view the Texans way better than that. So I decided to split it because with two 10-point spreads, one's going to cover, one's not going to cover. So I decided the Ravens will cover and the Texans will cover. I'm giving the 10, I'm getting the 10. So to repeat, Ravens minus 10, Texans plus 10, Packers minus 5. That leaves the Vikings. I watched the Vikings play because I've watched all the games. And I just, are you really going to bet on Kirk Cousins again? Is it possible that he can have a good game two weeks in a row? Well, I'm getting seven points, so I decided to take the touchdown and assume that they lose by a field goal. So to sum up, take the Vikings, Ravens, and then Texans and Packers, and watch me get three out of four at a minimum. Hey, it's been another good week for nothing personal. And remember, when you've heard your name, you know the truth. You know for me it's just business. It's nothing personal. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.